Last week, uh, we were in our series called First Timothy, and we're talking about the good fight, right? The good fight, you know, fight the good fight for the faith. I mean, there is such a thing as Christians who are called to fight. You know, blessed are the peacemakers, but when it comes to the success or the failure of the gospel, when it comes to defending the truth of who God is and what he's revealed and how we're to act toward one another in the church, sometimes we got to fight for what is right. So fight the good fight of the faith. And one of the things we talked about last week was Timothy's example, right? He said, Timothy, you may have all the right doctrine, but you're young. You may have been a missionary with Paul on a couple of journeys, and you may have seen God do a lot of things and have a lot of miraculous stories, but you're still young. And some of these people in Ephesus, they're going to look down on you, Timothy, because they think you just don't have enough wisdom to tell them about how to live the Christian life. Timothy, don't let people look down on you because you're young. How are you not going to let that happen? Set an example for the believers, right? And so what we said last week, if you go to the next slide, is... Timothy, most people would rather see a sermon or he, than hear one, right? You, you, you see that idea, you know, you can yak at people all day long and they can say, really, I hear what you're saying, but I want to know how you're living. So Timothy, the way you show them the gospel is true is in the way you talk and in your life and in your conduct and how you treat other people. And then when they see that you're training yourself in godliness, they're going to respect your Christian faith, right? The, your example, a church leader's example, is the most valuable gift that you can give to other people in the congregation. So that was last week. Now, Timothy, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have to have some difficult conversations with people because there are going to be people who are in error. There are going to be people who have false teaching. There are going to be people who have a misunderstanding of what the Christian faith is about, and you have to call them out. You have to correct them. But the attitude in which you do that, Timothy, has a lot to do with whether they're going to listen to you or not. So you need to treat everybody like family. Treat everybody like family. And as we get into this message, I, I just want to pray and ask for God to help. So would you pray with me? Lord, we want to get everything we can out of the message today. Thank you for the awesome music. Thank you for the communion. Thank you for hearing about Young Life. Thank you for these announcements. Thank you for the moments that we've had to, uh, to grow closer to you and connect with you. Lord, we also want to know what your will is for your people and your church living here in the 21st century. So, Father, would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? God, give me unction, give me clarity, and give me passion as I declare what your word says and what it means for us in our lives today. God, help us to be not just hearers of the word. Lord, help us to figure out how you want us to live it out as we go into this week. Lord, uh, would, you huddle, would you fortify us as we huddle together today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, okay. I want to ask you guys about family because you, when you mentioned that, I mean, I, my thoughts went all over the place. You know, you have 24 hours to live. What would you like to do in the last 24 hours you have on this planet to live? And I thought to myself, family, family, family. I'd want to be around family. Yeah, yeah, I'd want to be playing volleyball and I'd want to be playing cards and I'd want to be eating some good food, but I would all want it to be together with family. So when I, when I say that word family, I know immediately that all kinds of thoughts and feelings and memories come into your mind. You have experiences with your family. You have good times. You have painful times. You have times that have marked you as a person. There, ha there are memories that you have that... that let you know what is important to live for in this world today. And a lot of times you learned it in the context of your family, right? So your family you grew up in, the family that you're in right now, they are the people that you do life with. And how you treat family members and how they treat you has a lot to do with whether you're going to enjoy life or whether life is going to be a big bummer and miserable. Uh, in this world today. You know, some families make big deals out of birthdays. Some families are big on holidays. Some families, <clears throat> looking over on this side of the aisle, are big about Super Bowl 
and, and other events, they, you know, Thanksgiving, they love getting together. Some families love to go camping in the summer. You know, camp, you know, the summer's not so bad, Lisa, if you can be at Lake Tahoe. Now, that's true. So she could say, um, you know, we had a tale of two cities because uh, Friday, no, was it? Yeah, no, yeah, Friday, we're at 105 degrees in the Sacramento Valley, but then we went up to Lake Tahoe, and it was like 76 degrees, and absolutely gorgeous, and a nice breeze was blowing. So it's like it depends where you are in the summer, where you spend your time. So when you think of family, and you think of, okay, what, if I had to, if I had to take a sentence or two and say, what is my family value? As I know my family, and not just what we say is important, but the way we live our lives, what is really important in the life of your family, right? I came across this, uh, this mantle. It was, a, it was a framed picture on the wall of a, of a family member. And I saw this and I said, this is the kind of family that I want to be in, right? This is the kind of family I want to be a part of. In this family, we do second chances. And you know why? Because nobody's perfect and we're going to mess up. And the way that you forgive, I mean, it's not just that a marriage is made up of two good forgivers. Good families are made up of, of forgivers because we're going to offend one another. And family doesn't just walk away or throw each other out or say, you know what, I'm not talking to you anymore. You know, those are what we call dysfunctional families that act that way. Real healthy families figure out how to reconcile when they have their differences. So we do second chances. And why can you do second chances? Because we do grace. God pours out and gives us what we don't deserve, and he says, go and do likewise. You give to other people what they don't deserve. So we do grace. We do real. We do prayers. We do mistakes. We're not perfect. We do I'm sorry's. That's the, the 12 magic words. I was wrong. I am sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. You know, in that order, those are the 12 magic words of any good relationship. Marriage and family. We do I'm sorry's. We do loud really well. That's why I have to ask you to repeat yourself because I don't always hear what you say because I've done loud really well in my life. Uh, we do hugs. We do family. We do love. And I was talking to Diane Neighbor in the back, good Italian that she is, and she said, you left something out on that list. And I said, what? I thought it was pretty complete. And she said, we do food. <laughs> and so when you spell fellowship, Make it a four-letter F word, F-O-O-D, when you do fellowship with your family. The good four-letter F word, yes. Okay. Now, um, Paul tells Timothy, I want you to treat each other like family. If you have to rebuke, let's go to that first verse in 1 Timothy 5. And if you have your Bible there, you're looking at it on your, your device or your paper Bible or up on the screen, you can do it a number of different ways. But you remember Paul, I'm trying to do what Paul said to Timothy last week. He said, Timothy, when you come together with God's people and you're assembled, he said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture because the Word of God is living and active and it penetrates our lives and we deal with God's Word and we say, all right, God, I need to live better. I need to do it your way, not my way, based upon what you've given me and your revelation and your Word. So, Paul says, Timothy, you're going to have to rebuke some people in the church, but when you do, do it the right way. Speak the truth in love. And he says, never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully as you would to your own father, right? So how do you treat older people in the church? Respect them. If you, if you need to rebuke them, or, or correct them, do it in a respectful way. You know, I grew up in my family, we had one of our family values uh, was this term. We always said this, respect your elders. Did you, did you, anybody grow up in a family like that? Respect your elders. Why? Because they've lived long on this land. Because they many times have spent their hours, their energy, their resources, they're sacrificing themselves in order to raise us. And so we're as we're, we're respecting them and helping them when they get older, we're only repaying them really for a lot of what they've, they've done for us in our lives. Returning good to them for the good that we've received from them, right? 
So speak that way. Um, I, when I grew up, it was, you know, respect your elders, traditional values. You're speaking to an older person, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am. That was just normal to me growing up. Doesn't seem so normal anymore. The 1960s come around and a phrase comes out called question authority. You know, somebody says in 1968, never trust anybody over 30 years old. 30 years old, that seems like a kid to me. When I remember growing up and saying, oh, 30, oh, so old. I hope I make it to 30 someday. I, I remember I never thought I'd make it to the year 2000. I said, that's like a space odyssey. That's like 2000. I'll be 37 years old in 2000. That is so old. I'll never make it. I'll never make it that far. Yeah, well, we made it. We made it married. We were married then. We're still married now. You're stuck with me. Okay, so what happened to America in the 1960s? The 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 attitude of, a, of respect for age, respect for authority, kind of went out the window. And what's happened now in the last 15 years with this technical revolution, this digital revolution that we've been a part of, trying to keep up with all these new devices and gadgets, and you can do this, and you can do that, and there was MySpace, and then MySpace went away, and then there's Facebook, and then there's Snapchat, and there's Instagram, and there's Twitter. And there's probably all kinds of other ways to stay in touch. There's Zoom, and now we can have video conferences, and you have to look at the person you're talking to now. And, have, and so, so there's all kinds of ways, and it's all designed to enhance communication and stuff like that. But, but one thing I notice is it's the younger people that keep up. It's the younger people that have that. It's almost like they're, they're fish swimming in water. And the water they're swimming in is the digital technology and revolution. And they're just naturally born to it because that's all they've ever known. Well, I'm one of those frog, amphibian, morph types, platypuses, those dinosaurs, that I had to learn how to swim in the technical water. And I don't know how to do everything. And it doesn't come natural to me. Oh, it's intuitive. You know, just open it up and turn it on and it's intuitive. Not to me, it isn't. So, you know, so trying to keep up. And then the people that are even older, my, I, my mom and, and your mom and dad. I mean, now it's like, oh, the, the latest one was, oh, uh, we wanted to make sure you got an invitation to that uh, uh, baby shower coming up. Oh, that's so nice of you to tell me. Well, we sent you an evite three weeks ago, but, but we ne you never responded. And that was to her mom and dad. And I said, you sent them an evite and you think they're going to open it and respond and know what to do with that thing? I said, are you nuts? I said, call them. On what? On the phone. Oh, that's so antiquated. Yeah. To actually, to have a voice-to-voice -to -voice live conversation. It's so antiquated. Yeah, but that's how you communicate. And, and what we're finding out now in this faux reality out there, in this faux friendship, and this cyber communities that are out there, people are lonelier than they've ever been before because the cyber community is not real community. This face-to-face -face is real community where you can eat real cake to celebrate a real couple making it for 35 years and still speaking to each other and smiling to each other. So let's celebrate that with real cake. I've never had a piece of cyber cake before. It's probably zeros and ones. They just don't taste good, you know? So I'm sorry. Anyway, let me get off that. So appealing, respecting your, your, the, your elders, respecting them for one. You know, I found, a, I found a verse in Leviticus. You know, you want to go there. It's a, it's a good cure for insomnia, but, but as you're reading, you might remember some of these verses. One of them, Leviticus 19, it's like, remember the Sabbath is before it. Don't sell your daughter into prostitution is in there somewhere. Don't mix milk with meat. Uh, and and here, here's this nugget, comes right out of Leviticus 19. Rise in the presence of the aged. Rise in the presence of the aged. And I'm, I'm at the prayer meeting with uh, Gwen and Jean Armstrong, and we're reading that passage, and I think I heard an amen. I think I heard one of them say, amen. You know, Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly. Revere your God. I am the Lord. From the time of Moses... You know, 12, 13, 1400 years before the time of Christ, it was important to God. It was important in the life of families and communities to respect those who, had gone, who have gone before us, who know how to live life. Because honestly, time has not made us equal. 
right? Time is not made a sequel. You may be smarter, you may have more IQ, you may have more gadgets, you may have more resources, but they have a wisdom that you don't have because they've lived longer on this earth. And if they've been walking with God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they've walked with God longer than you have. So treat the, older women, treat the older men like fathers, treat the younger men like brothers. Do you see this family narrative, this family theme that's kind of running through this? Now you get to the sisters, to the women in the church in verse 2, and it says, and, and I have to stop and pause here, not for the first part, for, for the second part. It says, treat older women as you would your mother, right? I have a great respect for my mother, so that's an easy one for me to do. But look at this next part. It says, treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Now, I grew up with two brothers. Lisa was the first young woman in our home, uh, and uh, my brother Jeff did not know how to treat her like a sister. <laughs> you know, how? She, she's, she's in the bathroom getting ready, and he's like, how long are you going to be in there? You know? Get off the pot or whatever. He, he would say some of the most inappropriate things to her. And, and part of it, I give him a little bit of a break because you grow up with two brothers and you don't know any better. So I had to learn how to, I, you were my, my education about women. So treat older women as you would your mother. Treat younger women with all purity as you would your, your own sisters. Now listen to this. Treat people in the church like they're their family. And you know why? Because they are. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all family members in God's household. God is our father, and we are all brothers and sisters. And when you look at each other like family, you think differently about each other. You're not just somebody who happens to be sitting in the same room, going to the same church. You are family members with one another. And if here's the thing for younger women and us guys. This is, a, this is to all the men in the room. If you see a woman as a sister, as a family member, then you're not likely to think of her in any kind of inappropriate or sexual or romantic way. Remember that she is God's daughter in Christ. So treat her right and fair. And church leaders, and, and I'll speak to myself on this one, church leaders, we have got to establish some healthy boundaries and guardrails when it comes to relationships with the opposite sex. You know, Mike Pence got made fun of this when he came out and said this. I have this policy, he said, and it's patterned after Billy Graham. I don't know if you, know, if you knew this about Billy Graham, the great evangelist of the last century. Billy Graham had a rule. He had, this he had this female rule, this women rule. Billy Graham would never be alone in a room with another woman other than his wife, he would never travel in a car alone with another woman. He would never go to a restaurant and have a meal together with another woman. Now, Pastor Rick Warren saw what Billy Graham did, and he said, that's good enough for me. That's good enough for all the staff at our church at Saddleback. And there's probably 400 staff members at a 22,000-member Saddleback church down in Southern California. They have the rule that no male staff, if, they, if you have a conference to go to, if you have a lunch to go to as you're working during the week, if you have a meeting to go to and it's off campus somewhere, the rule is a, a male staff cannot go alone in a car with a female staff. And, and is that impractical? You bet it is. Does it seem extreme to some people? Yeah, it seems extreme. But they are putting up the guardrails. They are putting up the boundaries so they will be healthy. And it says, treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. You know, whether or not you agree with those strict boundaries, uh, they're there for a reason. And I'll tell you why. Because too many pastors, too many church leaders have fallen seriously. They've fallen into sexual sin because they have spent too much time alone with members of the opposite sex. Too many churches have been devastated because certain emotional and physical boundaries were crossed when a man and a woman who are not married to each other were alone together. Now, I can tell you this out of experience because I was born in Wichita, Kansas, and we were going to church there, and then we moved to Oklahoma for two years, and we stopped going to church my dad was in the military at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. We did a lot of camping on the weekend, but we didn't go to church. 
I didn't know the difference. I'm like seven years old. What do I know? So now we come and we move to California because my dad gets a job for Hughes Aircraft Company in Fullerton, just on the other side of Disneyland. And we move down there and life is great. And my mom says, hey, we didn't go to church in Oklahoma. We should find a church to go to here. Fine. So we found this, uh, this really good active Methodist church in Fullerton, not too far from our house. And we were going there, and we were having a good time. And I remember, the, I, I will tell you the one thing I remember about that church. I always look forward to church because when they sang the last song and everybody said amen, I bolted out the church because on the patio they had donuts. And I remember getting the donuts. And I remember the jelly donuts. I don't know why. I, like the, I remember the, I can picture it still. So, so out on the patio. Well, about a year and a half into the church. So here we are early 70s, a year and a half into the church, in the Methodist church, and the next thing you, we hear, we get this announcement, and we said, we're so sorry to have to inform you, church members, but our, our pastor, Dr. So-and-so, uh, has, he's, leave it, he's left his wife, they're getting a divorce, and he's run off to Hollywood with the church secretary. And it absolutely devastated the church. It split it right down the middle. The church probably lost two-thirds of its members because they got so disgusted. They said, if our own pastor and church leader does that, then what kind of a church is this? I don't want to go here anymore. And my mom and dad got offended. My dad still to this day, 45 years later, has not gone to any church and because of the hypocrites that are in the church. And my mom, we didn't go to church for another five years. So what do you think is going to happen in the spiritual development of a 10-year-old kid from the time he goes from 10 to 15, gets into all kinds of friendships with all kinds of people who had nothing to do with God or Jesus, influenced by all kinds of influence. By the time I get to 15 years old and I, I walk back into the church, into a youth group, and I've got a lot of baggage, I've got a lot of wrong thinking, I've got a lot of wrong values, and God has to kind of rebuild me from the time I was 10 because of what happened there. And not only because of that, because you could have said to my parents, hey, you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and people will fail you, but God will never fail you, and all this stuff. You should just find another church and a better church. That was probably good advice. That's probably what they should have done. That's not what they did, and I was a fallout of that. I was a fallout because of sexual sin in a church leader because that church leader did not treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. So a church has a responsibility to how it treats its own family members. Older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. And now Paul switch gears and he says, okay, we've talked about family, you know, treat each other like family in the church. And now he's going to say, what is the church's responsibility when it comes to needy people in the church? And the category of needy people in this particular case, in this letter, is widows. What is the church's responsibility toward needy widows? So Paul says this, this is uh, uh, slide number six. It says, take care of or honor any widow who has no one to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now, whenever I read that, I said, this is something that pleases God. I always think about, so what would the opposite of that be? What would be something that absolutely displeases God? What would be something that God would say, shame on you for doing that? What would the opposite of this be that would displease God? So somebody who doesn't show godliness at home, somebody that doesn't fulfill their responsibility, somebody who does not repay their parents, that when their parents get needy or when they get to a, 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 po a point where they, they're not able to take care of themselves, that they, instead of just saying, hey, you're our parents, we're, it's our responsibility to help care for you, they abandon their responsibility to care for their own parents. That would be something that I would say absolutely displeases God. Right? Paul wanted Christian families to be healthy and working and prospering. Right? If you, so the people that are healthy and they're strong and they have resources and the energy and the ability to work and make a living, they are to do that. 
so that they can help take care of their weaker family members, right? Look what Paul says in Thessalonians. He says, yet we hear, and now he's talking about people that said, oh, I think Jesus might be coming sometime really soon. So if that's the case, why do I need to work? Why don't I just go up on a hill and put up a hut and pray and just wait for the Lord's return? And Paul says this, we hear that some of you are living lives refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. He says, we command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, settle down and work to, make, to earn their own living. Another passage in Thessalonians, in the first letter, Paul says, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, and take tender care of those who are weak. Take care of those who are weak. And the, and the only thing, if you have no, here's the thing, if you have no resources, you can't take care of somebody, right? Believe me, Lisa, I, we know this. If you have resources, God says, I want you to use your resources to help care uh, of those who are needier family members. In this case, he's talking about is widows. So caring for widows is an, is an important part of the life of the church, according to Paul, especially in their case in the first century, because of what it was like in the first century there, right? Caring for widows was important in the, in the Jewish tradition. You go back in the, in the Jewish scriptures and you say, what does Paul, what does God think about widows and those who are in need? And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, caring for widows, it says, the Lord, the Lord is the one who defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. They're important to him. God's defending their cause, the fatherless and the widow. Says it again in Exodus. He says, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Somebody's vulnerable in society. They're weak. They're needy. They don't have any resources. Don't take advantage of them. Don't exploit them. Don't do that. That's wrong. And then finally, in another passage in Deuteronomy, God, God's very strong about this one. He says, cursed. <clears throat> you want to be under God's curse? Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien or the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Cursed is somebody who acts like that. The Apostle Paul says in, here in Timothy, look, in our families, in our church family, in our church family and in your own individual families, it is the grown children and grandchildren. They should be the first people, if they can, who take care of widows in their own families. And why is that? Well, because a widow in the 21st century is probably not quite the same as a widow in the first century. What's the difference? Well, a widow in the first century, they had very little means of financial support. Very little means of financial support. It's interesting that Paul doesn't mention widowers. Hey, take care of the widows, widowers in your church. Why did he not say anything about that? Well, probably because there weren't too many of them, number one. Uh, by the way, even in America, now in the 21st century, if you are a married woman, Three out of four of you are going to be a widow at some time in your life. Three out of four married women are going to be a widow at some time in your life. Now, Lisa always says she's going first, but uh, the stats are against her. I'll just tell her that. The, the statistics don't bear that out. Um, Paul doesn't mention widowers. He's only talking about widows. It was different in the first century for widows. They had very little financial means of self-support. There wasn't any Social Security. There wasn't any pensions from a person who retired from the job. There, there were very few honorable jobs that women could do on their own in the first century. And so many widows, they were unable to financially support themselves. You know, you could say today, well, I'm sorry your husband's passed away, but, you know, you still have the ability to work. You can go get a job. You can help support yourself in that way. All that is true, but not in the first century. They couldn't just, quote, go and get a job like you can today. So I think that's why James, the Lord's brother, he chimes in on this whole thing, and he's talking about, you want to you know what a really good religious person is like? James chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this. So, hey, you want to be right in God's eyes? You want to practice the religion that he thinks is great? What are you supposed to do? Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. So do you think God has a heart for widows and orphans and needy people and families, those who are in distress? Yeah, I really think he does.
The responsibility for caring for the helpless, needy family members naturally falls first on their own immediate families. And so Paul makes it clear it's important that family members take care of their own. Because back then, a widow, if a, but here's the thing. Back then, if a widow's family had all died or passed away or moved away, and she was all by herself, there was no means of financial support, then, Paul says, if a widow doesn't have any resources like that, now it's the church's responsibility. In such a case, the church can take care for the widow who has no family. But so... I think about that, I say, okay, first century, Paul's only got one category of needy person, and he's talking about widows, widows who have died and have no means of financial support. But are there any other types of categories of needy persons in society as, quote, like in the church today, how can we care for widows in, in the church where we live today among our own community and our own family members? And I would say that in today's world, in addition to caring for widows, I'd say that there are also family members. What about the ones who have disabilities? What about family members who have special needs? What about family members who have serious health issues, debilitating, whether or not they're male or female? In such cases, that means that none of them are really able to work and support themselves financially. And so that means that we now have a family duty to care for people like that. So Paul goes on and he's talking about these widows and he says, now a true widow, and how does he describe a true widow? A, wi a widow, a woman who's truly alone in this world, how is she going to get by? She's placed her hope in God. She prays night and day. She's asking God for help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure, in other words, a widow who is not needy, uh, who has all this time now because she doesn't have family to care for, she, if she lives only for pleasure, she's spiritually dead even while she lives. Timothy, give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. One thing you notice about Paul, Paul is always looking like from a 30,000 foot perspective, looking over the church, looking at it from the big picture and saying, what do the people in this city, what do the people in this society living around this local church what do they think about the practices and the way that we live our life, the way we treat our, our own family members, the way we treat each other? How is the community looking on the church? And do we have a good reputation in the community? Paul's always got that in mind because he always says this will, this will bring honor to the Lord Jesus. This will bring uh, glory to him when you act like that in your community, right? So Paul's, uh, now Paul's got a harsh word. In fact, this is my, in, in my opinion, in the, in the letter of 1 Timothy, here's the harshest verse in all six chapters, and it's in verse 8. Paul says this, but those who won't care for their own relatives, in other words, not, not I would like to, but I can't. I, I want to, but I don't have any resources. No, he says, if you have resources and yet your attitude is this, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in your own household, they've denied the faith, and such people are worse than unbelievers. You go to the older translations, he says, such people are worse than infidels. You want to be known as an infidel in God's sight? Have the ability to take care of a needy family member, and yet your attitude is closed. You refuse to do it. You refuse to give them any attention. You refuse to give them any of your time or resources for whatever reason, right? You're worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. You've denied the faith. You don't even understand Christianity 101 because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, and your family is your first level of neighbor, this is one of Paul's harshest criticisms for other believers in the whole New Testament. It's not a rebuke for having the wrong doctrine. It's not, oh, hey, you're really mistaken about, you know, who God is or what the church is all about. It's not a mistake for bad doctrine or bad theology. This is a lack, this is a severe rebuke for having a lack of love. Paul's rebuking the person for having no compassion toward their own family member. It's, a, it's as if Paul has a special category of contempt for those who will not do anything to help out their own close relatives who are in need financially. And for those cold-hearted family members, Paul's saying, shame on you. 
You can't just ignore or neglect the needs of your own relatives, especially if it's your own mother or father or grandmother or grandfather. That's not honoring to them. You remember Jesus, that, that story that um, he, he said, he says, and, and when you have a party, don't just invite those people to the party who can invite you back to their parties because that's kind of the way it works, right? You invite somebody to a party and they come to your party and they say, oh, thanks so much for inviting me to your party. And of course, the expectation is nobody writes this down. There's no law. You can't go to a chapter and verse, but it's there. It's like, well, you invited me to your home and we had a nice party or a dinner or something like that. Um, so sometime in the future, um, you know, give and receive. I'm waiting for an invitation to, to your house or your party. And, and Jesus says, you're used to doing that. He says, but if you invite those to your party only so you can get an invitation to go to their party, he says, you're no better than a pagan. He says, even the pagans do that. He says, but when you throw a party, invite the people to come to the party that'll never be able to pay you back. That's real love and grace, right? So not even caring for your own relatives, those in their own household. They've denied the faith. They're worse than an unbeliever, right? That's, it's sad, but that's true. So now Paul's going to go into this category. This is my least favorite part of the whole book of 1 Timothy, just laying it out there for you. But I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't enjoy this part of the message. It's not really interesting to me or that fun. But that, because he goes in about seven verses on, well, who qualifies to be on the widow's list for church support, right? Who, who gets on the list, right? Who's on the approved list? And he says, okay, so a widow who's put on uh, the list for support, supposed to be a woman who's at least 60 years old, supposed to be a woman who is faithful to her husband, well-respected by everyone because of the good that she's done. Uh, has she brought up her children well? Look at her family life. Has she been kind to strangers? Has she served other believers humbly? That, that's the New Living Translation. The actual literal translation is, has this widow, has she washed the feet of the saints? Now, you, you, that may not mean much to you. We've done foot washing ceremonies. Most foot washing ceremonies I've ever been a part of, the people's feet don't look that bad. <laughs> they don't look that bad to begin with. But I guarantee in Jesus' day, when everybody's wearing sandals and there weren't paved roads and there was a bunch of animal stuff on the street as well as the dirt and the dust, when that person came in and they took off their sandals, whoever had the job of washing their feet, by the way, that was culturally, that was the lowest rung on the societal ladder. You were the lowest, most menial servant. You had no authority at all. If you, could, if you had any authority, you would find the person you had authority over and you say, you go wash their feet, right? So if, if a woman, a widow was washing the feet of the saints, she was really acting like a servant. She's helping, has she helped those in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? So you see these qualifications. And I think what Paul's telling Timothy is, Timothy, look, there's going to be a group of needy widows in, their in the church. There's going to be people whose family, for whatever reason, that maybe they have no family, maybe they've all passed away. Maybe the widow's 90 years old and everybody in her family has passed away. Like that poor old woman, she comes up to the pastor. She says, I need, pastor, I need to die. I need to die and go to heaven. And the pastor says, why are you so anxious to die? And she says, well, if, if I don't die soon, when I get to heaven... Or, or if I don't die soon, they're going to wonder if, if I actually made it to heaven or not. You know? So I blew the joke. Forget it. <laughs> if I don't get there soon, all my friends are going to think I didn't make it. That was, there was the punchline. All my friends are going to think I didn't make it. So you outlast everybody. And now you have no financial means of support. Right? Now, by the way, Jeff, you're talking about uh, Johnson, about relating the gospel to younger people and saying, by the way, has Jesus and the Christian faith done anything to make our world better? Do we not have uh, programs and, and government programs and church programs in our world today to help people who have no financial means? I mean, isn't that, it, we, live, we live in a society that is blessed because of the Christian influence where he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of those who are needy. 
Take care of people who can't take care of themselves. That's how you show the love of God to those people. And we have a lot of that existing in our society today because of the influence of Jesus and his people and his community, the church, in America for the last two, three, four hundred years. And that's the truth. All right, let me get off that and get on to this, this other thing. So who qualifies to be on the approved widow's list in the church, right? And so... So he talks about that, and then he talks about younger widows, and he said there's a reason why a woman needs to be at least 60 years old to be on this widow's list, and he talks about younger widows. So anybody who's not 60 yet, this is kind of cool, because I think Paul says you're younger, you're younger. So if you're 59 and you're not 60 yet, Paul says you're younger, and that's, that's nice. So the younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ, and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. So Paul, remember he gives this list of, here's what a godly widow looks like. Here's what she's going to be doing with her life, right? Serving the saints. She's going to be raising her kids right. She's going to be humble, praying God day and night to, day and night to sustain her. She's going to be doing all those things. The younger widows will want to remarry, and when they want to remarry, then they're going to not be as active doing this other thing. So they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. Now, then he says, I urge younger women to remarry, right? So uh, he says a, a younger w widow would be conflicted. And then now we get to, and we're, we're at the last few verses of this passage here. So he says, talking to about, about widows, and if they're on the list... These widows who are on the list for church support, they, if they're on the list, now, okay, so it's like you read this and you go, who is he talking about? He's talking about younger widows, if they're on the list, and they're still healthy and physically active, but they're getting their financial needs met by the church, what is the likely thing that they would do? You know, Martin Luther said it, idle hands are what? Idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? And so you raising kids, you always know. You don't give your kids something to do, they're going to find something to do. So, and, and, and we used to love it when our kids would come up to us and they'd say, mom, dad, we're bored. And we'd say, you're bored? Oh, this is awesome because I have something for you to do so you won't be bored. And you give them some housework or some yard work or something like that. And I didn't do that. Well, you said you were bored. I'm giving you something to do. So guess what? Guess how many times they came up to us after that and said, I'm bored. Zero. Parenting 101. All right. Uh, so they're on the list for support, these younger widows, and they're getting the church support, and now they have this time. Paul goes down this road, and he says, here, I can just imagine what they're going to get into. They'll learn to be lazy. They'll spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business, Gee, I'm glad you're not like any of this. Uh, and talking about things they shouldn't talk about. So I advise these younger widows to marry again. In other words, be active if you're healthy and you can still have a family life and your husband's died. By the way, he didn't say this, but it's in other passages. Find a Christian man to marry. It's not just somebody who has a paycheck. It's not just Mr. Right now. You got to wait for Mr. Right. Okay, so... Here we go. So uh, find the right guy. Don't be meddling this. Advise younger widows to marry again, to have children, to take care of their own homes. Because why? Because now Paul's going to look at the overall picture and he's going to say, what's the reputation of the church going to be if these women are acting like that in around their neighborhoods and society? The church's reputation is going to go right down the drain and Paul doesn't want that. So he says, I advise these younger widows to marry, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says this, for I'm afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan, right? The context is what? They're, they're spending their time gossiping, going from house to house, meddling under, in other people's business, right? So you have these women who might be acting like that, maybe getting into false teaching Maybe not learning to usurp the authority if you go to earlier passages in Timothy. And Paul says, I don't want women acting like that. If the women that are going to act like they're just going to go around meddling in other people's business, looking for gossip, learning to, you know, talk bad about other people behind their back. If that's what the women are going to be doing, it says they, then they're, they've already, some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. And I said to myself, 
wow, Paul, you went like DEFCON 5 on these women. They're, they're meddling. They're, they're going around house to house. They're talking. Maybe they're getting into gossip. And you jump from that to now they're following Satan? Where did that come from? Well, you find a passage in Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the books in the Hebrew Scriptures, one of the minor prophets. Zechariah has this vision, and in this vision, he sees the high priest of the Jewish faith. His name was Joshua at the time. And the high priest of the Jewish faith is standing there, and he's, and he's sort of humiliated, and he's covered in shame. So he's the high priest, but he's, but he's covered in shame. And the reason he's covered in shame is because next to Joshua, the high priest is the devil, is Satan. And what is Satan doing? He's accusing Joshua of all the bad things he's ever done or ever said, all the ways he's dishonored God in his life, all the ways he hasn't loved his neighbor as himself. You did this, you did that, you don't deserve to be a high priest. God, look at this. Why are you got this guy in this position of high priest? He can't earn, he didn't earn this. He's not godly enough. He doesn't deserve to be here. And Satan is just there accusing, accusing, accusing. Somebody who talks somebody down like that, who belongs to God? Because, because the answer from God to Satan's accusations against somebody who feels condemned by say, God, you know, if only the righteous can stand, Lord, who could stand, right? There's another passage in Scripture. Who can really stand up and say, I'm good enough, I'm godly enough for God to, to accept me and to be in heaven? And the answer is every one of us in, a, in certain ways are like this Joshua because there's condemnation for sin. The wages of sin is death. If it weren't for Jesus, we'd all be in this position of condemnation for all the bad things we've said and done. Thank God that Jesus came along and said, Satan, shut up. Because, yeah, that person has done wrong. That person has said wrong. That wages of sin is death. But Jesus already came and paid the penalty. He was already the substitute payment of sin. So Satan, you don't get to accuse him anymore. And Satan gets thrown out. But somebody starts acting like Satan when they take somebody else's life and they start finding fault and looking for mistakes and looking for weaknesses and looking for ways to talk them down because the easiest, it's sad, but the easiest form of trying to build up your own self-esteem, the easiest way to do it, the lowest way to do it is try to put somebody else down so you can feel better about yourself. And God says, don't do that. You do that, you follow the way of Satan. So it was in the context of widows and younger widows. But the overall context we're talking about is family, family relationships in the church. And Paul says family takes care of their own. Family, uh, you're acting godly when you're loving your neighbor as yourself. And the first people around you, your first level to love your neighbor as yourself people are members of your own family. So treat them right. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Treat them as sisters with all purity. I'm going to invite Hannah and April and the worship team to come up. We're going to close in a song. Um, but I just want to close with this because I've been all over the map. I told you this wasn't my favorite passage in Timothy, but it's there. And we go through, the, we go through verse by verse so we don't miss anything God has for us in his revelation to us, the Bible. So I, I've, I've told you what the verses say and what they mean. Um, but just as a reminder, say, okay, all the things you said, what's the takeaway, right? As members of God's family, as members of this church, as members of the church who have people who are weaker members and might be needy, we have three levels of responsibility as followers of Christ in the church. The first one is to the church leaders. Whether you're male or female, it's opposite sex relationships. A pastor or a church leader must be careful. That's your first fill in the blank on the bulletin outline a pastor church leader must be careful about relationships with the opposite sex whatever rules you set up that's up to you but there there should be some rules and there should be some boundaries because when they're not bad stuff can happen and the reputation of god and the church in the community the confidence that people would ever have in a church leader who's supposed to be a godly man or a godly woman just goes down and it's hard to get it back Fortunately, I know by experience. So number one. Number two, the responsibility of the church is to care for those who are truly in need. 
right? So the church, uh, you know, we, I, like we have our Barnabas, our Barnabas ministry. This church excels in, in, in fulfilling this mandate, number two. The responsibility of the church is to care for those who are truly in need. And in this context that Paul's talking about here with Timothy, especially widows, especially widows who don't have number three. Because now this is for every one of us because every one of us come from some kind of a family and our primary responsibility for us in the Christian family is to care for our own family members, to not let them go in need, to do what we can to help them. Because somebody who, re, somebody who has the means or has the resources and knows there's a family member in need and does nothing to help that family member, Paul says they've denied the Christian faith. Denied the faith, they're worse than an infidel. And we don't want to be like that. We want to do what pleases God. We want to be able to take care of our own family members. Family, taking care of family, that's what pleases God. Let's pray. You know, the greatest desire that God has is for every single person to be in his family. God created you and me for relationship. He says eternal life is this, to know you, the only true God. That's relationship. So God wants that relationship with us. He wants us to become members of his family. And he's made a way for that to happen. And that pathway is through trust and faith in his son Jesus Christ the apostle John says it this way as many as received him Jesus as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God and to become a child of God is to become a member in God's family God is a God a father to the fatherless he's a husband to the widow he loves it when people belong in family and especially his family. If you see yourself and you say to yourself, I, I don't know where I am with God right now. I don't know if I've actually crossed this line of faith, if I've committed myself to become a follower of Jesus yet or not, but I want to. And I want to do it today because I want to be in God's family. I want to enjoy relationship and life with God forever. If that's the desire of your heart, I invite you, whether you're online, whether you're here in this room, just to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, Lord, I, I want to become a follower of you. I, I, I recognize that you gave your life when you died on the cross for me. You paid for my sins, and you're inviting me now to come to you and put my trust in you. And if I do, if I do that and that's what I'm saying I want to do today, Lord. I'm, I'm putting my faith in you. I'm committing my life to follow you. And Lord, I'm taking you at your promise that if I do that, I will become a member forever of your family. Lord, what a hope that is. What, a, what an awesome privilege that is to become a family member in God's household. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making a way for that to happen. And I love you, and I thank you for loving me first. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to see what our responsibility is in our own families, to take care of one another, to relate to each other in grace and compassion and love. Lord, help us to do the right thing, whatever you're calling us to do. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.